Amen. Amen. What a start to the night. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to grab that right now. Go ahead and go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I said this last week, I'll say it again. Anytime you're flipping through your Holy Bible, it's okay to use the Holy Table of Contents and try to figure that out if you don't know where that is. If you're watching online, I want you to grab your Bible too tonight. We're going to be talking about some things uh, that might be a little heavy, might be a little difficult for you to hear. Uh, and my biggest burden every time I preach is that you would know I'm not making this up, but rather this is coming out of God's Word for us. And so if you have some frustration with what I say tonight, I want you to know your frustration is not with me. Your frustration is with what God has to say, and I want you to go wrestle with him. Like, you don't owe me an answer. You owe him an answer. And why do I say this? Uh, Because tonight, um, we're going to be in week two of our Cautionary Tales series. If you weren't here last week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at four generations uh, of characters, of individuals in the Bible. And we're going to see the ways they blew up their life. We're going to see the various landmines they stepped on. We're going to see the various ways um, that their sin took them out. And tonight, we're going to get to that second week, and we're going to tell that second cautionary tale. And tonight, that cautionary tale is going to bring us to the subject of sex. Now, here's what I've learned in all my years of church ministry. When I say that one word, six words just ran through some of your minds. When I say that one word, sex, and that's the subject for tonight, there's six words that ran through a bunch of your minds, and the six words were, I wish I stayed home tonight, right? (laughs) And the people watching online are like, I am home, right? But, 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 But listen, I get it. This is one of these uncomfortable subjects we don't want to talk about, and we certainly don't want the pastor at church talking about. But here's the other observation I'll make. This is very strange, right? It's sort of like the two things no one wants to hear about in church are money and sex, right? And I'm not going to talk about money tonight, so you can take that off the table, but we are going to talk about sex. And here's the strange thing. I think we're uncomfortable hearing about sex in church, and yet can I just make an observation that I think you'll agree with pretty quickly? There is probably nothing in your life, there's probably nothing that can blow up your life as quickly as sex. Isn't that true? Like, don't you know that to be true? Don't you know if you've ever studied human history ever, it is basically the story of people making terrible decisions about sex and not ruining things? Like, don't you know the story of like every royal family ever is someone abdicating the throne because they want to have sex with someone they shouldn't have sex with? That's the story of history. But more importantly tonight, it's probably the story of your family. Like, I'm guessing this room is filled with people who know the story of their family and know that somewhere along the way, someone's decision about sex impacted them and their family in ways that you still feel the effects of today. Like, I just know there are people in this room where your family just got blown up because of an affair, because of a divorce. I know that maybe some of you are walking through the consequences of you choosing to have sex or you choosing to go down the sexual road with someone and you regret it to this day. And listen, there's someone in this room who feels the effect of someone else choosing to have sex. And you're still dealing with that wound today. So I think whatever you land on, whatever you agree or disagree or like or don't like, I think we can all agree that there's probably nothing that can blow up your life as rapidly as sex can. And that's why we want to talk about that tonight. And we need to talk about that here in church because I want to make two observations about the culture, about the the nation, about the place we live in. And the two observations I want to make tonight are this. Number one is that our culture is weirdly obsessed with sex. Isn't that the case? Isn't it strange how weirdly obsessed? Isn't it weird that you can't watch a single television show or movie or or hear certain genres of music and not hear about sex constantly? Isn't it strange that sex is just kind of constantly pushed into your face? We're constantly talking about it. Don't you find it strange that there's no other bodily action that we speak about that much? Like, we don't spend, like, hours and hours discussing and thinking about and having positions on toothbrushing, right? It's not a thing we do. We're not like, sneezes, let's talk about that tonight, right? I'm not going to get any of you really upset about talking about, like, sleep and how many hours you should get, although some of you need a lot more than you get. But sex is this thing that our culture is just weirdly obsessed with. Like, you just can't turn on any device and not see a story about sex within the first few minutes, So our culture is like weirdly obsessed with sex. And and yet here's the second thing I just want to point out. And I think even if you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, you'll agree with this, that our culture is wildly confused about sex. Our culture has no idea what it believes about sex. On the one hand, sex doesn't mean anything at all. And you can just have sex. And who cares? Don't be one of those prudes who thinks sex matters. And on the other hand, it is the most important thing about you. And your sexuality is the defining feature of your existence. Right? 
On the one hand, it's like, you should talk about sex all the time because it should be normalized to talk about sex. You don't want to be like those weird Christian people who don't want to talk about sex. Then you start talking about sex all the time and people are like, whoa, that is sexual harassment, right? Like there's no in between. Our culture has no idea what to do with sex. It is weirdly and wildly obsessed with sex and yet wildly confused about it. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to talk about sex. I thought about titling this sermon like lust or temptation or anything like that. But let's just use the word. Let's be adults. Let's face this full on. It is sex that we're going to talk about in this room tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Here we go. Here we go. We'll see if you're clapping by the end. All right. All right. Let's talk about sex. All right. Three things the Bible has to say about sex and three things that I want to set the stage with. Number one, the Bible, according to the Bible, sex is a good thing. Okay. Like, I just don't want anyone to live under this delusion that sex is sort of this, like, dirty, foul thing that we're not supposed to talk about. And if you're married, maybe, but don't really, like, don't bring it up. No, sex is a good thing. Number two, sex is a gift. Like, God gave the gift of sex to the first human beings. And have you ever thought about how cool it is and how gracious God is that he could have had us as a species reproduce in any other way? (laughs) But instead, he's like, here is the most pleasurable way possible. Like, how cool is that? But, But that's what our God did. So sex is a good thing. Sex is a gift. And then finally, sex is God's idea. (laughs) Like, like I think every generation thinks they've discovered sex. Like, every generation's like, well, our parents, they didn't know anything, but we are 23 and we know everything, right? Like, it's God's idea. He came up with it. So the Bible just has this glowing, wonderful view of what sex is and how it's this gift for us. And and yet, I want to try to be clear tonight. Because if this is the only part of the sermon you listen to, I think a lot of you would leave and be like, let's do this. You know, like, this would be a problem. It'd be a huge problem. Because here's the thing about sex. Sex is a good thing. It's God's idea. It's a gift. But I also want to give you an image and a metaphor tonight. Here's the metaphor. That sex is like fire. Sex is like fire. What, what, what do I mean by this? Here's what I mean. I mean that when it's in the right context and when it's controlled, it provides both warmth and light. Like think of a fire, like in a fireplace, it provides warmth and light. When it's on a torch, when it's in an oven making one of those lovely pizzas, it it provides warmth, it provides heat for your life, it provides light. See, fire is this beautiful gift if it's in the right context. And tonight I'm going to talk to you about that context. Um, And I want to just say from the beginning, with, with no apologies or equivocations, what the Bible teaches about the right context is for sex. And I'm going to say it out loud, and I just understand that for some of you, this is going to sound like the greatest heresy of our time. I understand that for some of you, you're going to bristle at it, and I just want to plead with you never to be the person who hears something in church you don't like and walks away or tunes out or shuts off the stream or decides you don't want anything to do with it. Be the type of person who can hear something you disagree with. I want you to know that the Bible unequivocally and unapologetically teaches that sex is a gift of God given for the context of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman forever. That's the context. And when it is done in that context, when it is experienced in that context, it creates warmth and it creates light. And tonight when I talk about sex and then when I talk about the ways that sex can really blow up our lives, I want to talk about it in the context of one man, one woman in a covenant marriage forever. And that is the context that God has given us for sex. But then I want you to know the opposite is true. That just like fire, when sex is out of context and out of control, it destroys everything in its path. It is uncontrollable rage. It is an uncontrollable energy within you. And some of you, even if you're not a Christian, you know what it's like to just have this kind of like madness inside of you that's driving you toward behavior that you know isn't right for you. So tonight we're going to talk about sex. Tonight we're going to see a story that is built around sex. And we're going to see the consequences for an individual who did not realize the power of sex, who did not realize that context is everything when it comes to this good gift of sex. We're not talking about sex as a problem you need to solve tonight. We're not talking about sex as some dirty thing you need to get out of your mind. We're going to talk about sex tonight in perhaps a different way than you've considered it before. Here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the fact that sex is an appetite we manage, not a problem we solve. For some of you, that is all you need to think about tonight. For the rest of the night, you need to consider this. Sex is an appetite we manage, not a problem that you solve 
And tonight I wanna talk to you about how we manage that appetite, how we manage that appetite in light of this cautionary tale of a man named David who failed to manage that appetite. See, last week, if you were here, we were talking about King Saul and his jealousy of David and how David was rising up as the superstar and Saul was jealous of him. Well, here we are in the next generation and David's issue isn't pride. It isn't jealousy. His issue is sex. And we're gonna see what happens here in this story. So again, 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, we'll get into that here. Uh, And then if someone left their phone on the stage, well, uh, I'm gonna toss it down here so I don't step on it. All right, here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here's how it begins. In verse one, it says, in the spring, in the spring at the times when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So here's the observation I want to make at the beginning of the story. Again, tonight is about the sex being this appetite that we manage rather than a problem we solve. And tonight I want to talk about how we manage that appetite. And I think even in this first sentence here, we get something that we need to be aware of. This is true for you as a man. It's true for you as a woman. It's true for all of us. It says in the spring, what are, what, what are kings supposed to do in the spring? Well, in the spring, that's when kings go off to war. The winter is over. It's time to go defend your boundaries. It's time to go defend your women and your children. It's the time kings go off to war. But what this verse makes clear is this, that David's not at the war. He's not at the battle. He sends someone else. David stays in Jerusalem. Let me make three observations here. Number one, David is not where he should be. Where should David be? He should be off at war. Where is he? In Jerusalem. Number two, David is not with the people he should be with. David should be with the army, with the generals, with the commanders, but rather he is back at his palace, not with the people he should be with. And finally, David is not doing what he should be doing. What should he be doing? He should be off fighting a war, defending his people, defending the women and the children who live in his country. But that's not what he's doing. And here's what I want to observe to you tonight. If you are going to manage the appetite of sex that rages within you and inside of your body, you are going to have to figure out how to not make the same mistake David did. David is not with the people he should be with. He's not in the place he should be. He's not doing what he should be doing. In other words, God has a call on his life and David's not doing anything with it. And I want you to understand this, that your battle against sexual temptation, your battle against lust, your battle against sexual sin will never be successful if you are not doing what God's called you to do in the first place. Like whatever call God's put on your life, whatever thing he wants you to pour your energy into, if you're choosing not to do that, you will never be victorious over sexual sin. You will never manage that appetite well. David begins the story setting himself up for failure. It goes on this way in verse two. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. So he's not where he should be. He's not with the people he should be with. He's not doing the thing he's supposed to be doing. And then it's the middle of the night and he can't sleep. And if you know what that's like when it's in the middle of the night and you can't sleep, it is a frustrating experience, right? You're laying in bed and you're just kind of like, you're trying to sleep, you can't sleep, then you're frustrated and then you're stressed that you're not sleeping and then you get stressed about being stressed about not sleeping. It's a terrible experience. Some of you have had that recently. I did last night. Um, Anyway, middle of the night, he's up. Are his friends around him? No. Is he sleeping well? No. Is he in a good headspace? No. Everything is poised right now for him to make a terrible, terrible mistake. And he doesn't realize it. He doesn't have his friends around. He's not doing what he should be doing. He's in the wrong spot. He's not at his best. Everything is against him right now and he's about to fall and he has no idea. So what should we learn from this cautionary tale? Like, what are we going to learn immediately from David? Here's what I want us to learn. I want us to learn that we need to become ruthlessly self-aware about what triggers us. Like, I need you to understand that temptation towards sexual sin, that sexual appetite, is not equal at all moments. There are probably moments where it's not really present, and there are moments where it rages within you. And David has no idea what's about to happen to him and the consequences that will come from this moment because he's not ruthlessly self-aware. And that's what I want you to be. Listen, if you are struggling with sexual sin, if you are struggling with sexual temptation, you need to become aware of at least two things. Here's the first question for you that I want you to be aware of. What are the external triggers for you? What are the external triggers for me? What are the external things outside of me that trigger me toward this sexual appetite, this sexual sin? Usually it's going to come in the form of media, right? 
It's going to be movies, TV shows, something on your phone. Uh, For some of you, it's like your Instagram explore page. You go on there and it's just like filled with sexualized images that just gets pumped toward you constantly. But for some of you, you need to be aware of certain things you're going to see, maybe even certain television shows. Maybe there's certain things that you're just aware of. Certain social environments that you know if you're in that party or in that place or around those people, that's going to trigger you toward doing things you promised you would never do. But I'm going to tell you, that's actually the easy one to figure out. The easy one to figure out is you see a sexualized image and that stirs something up with inside you. I actually want you to do the deeper work of not just what your external triggers are. I want you to ask this, what are the internal triggers for me? What are the places that I'm at in my soul that actually cause me to want to turn to sex rather than God for my comfort? In an addiction world, an addiction recovery world, they talk about the, the um, I don't know, it's called the, uh, the letters that stand for something. Acronym. Acronym. That's the one. They talk about the acronym HALT. HALT. H-A-L-T. They say when you are hungry, when you are angry, when you are lonely, and when you are tired, you are poised to mess up. When you are hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, you need to halt. You need to stop and realize that you are probably about to make a mistake. I'll add to that when you're insecure, when you're afraid, when you've been rejected by someone when you feel left out of the group, when you feel left behind, when you're feeling FOMO, when you're feeling like everyone else is living, but I'm not, you gotta figure out what are these internal triggers for me? Because I think what you'll find very quickly is I think the the, the shallow idea is the reason I struggle with sexual sin is because there's sexualized images and ideas everywhere. But the deeper idea is that the reason you struggle with sexual sin is because there's some kind of wound within you. And when that wound gets stoked or poked or, or re-inflamed, you go toward sexual sin to find healing for that. And when you start to realize that, that's when you can start to move forward on this. David has no idea that he's about to blow up his life. But I want you to be the opposite. I want you to be ruthlessly self-aware. It goes on in verse 2. It says, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find her, or to find out about her. The man, the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So let me point out two things that happen here. He's on the roof. It's the middle of the night. These internal triggers are going. There's an external trigger of a woman that he saw. So internally, he's not where he should be. He's tired. He's not doing so well. He's not feeling so great. And then there's an external trigger he saw. And what happened? He saw... So he sent. What he saw ended up going into action. And you would be unbelievably naive if you think you can just constantly be seeing sexualized images in our culture and that not affect you at all. Like some of you have an arrogance beyond belief that you don't need to have blockers on your phone and you don't need to limit your media intake because you're good, it doesn't affect you at all. And I just think that is naive beyond belief. So here's what we need to be aware of. We need to be aware that when we see someone, we end up sending toward it. We end up going toward it. We end up moving toward that because it is an appetite we manage, not a problem we ever solve. So so in order to kind of talk and teach on this a little bit, I want to bring you back to a song. Some of you didn't grow up in church, so you won't recognize this at all. But if you grew up in a church like I did, you sang kind of uh, amazingly cheesy little songs that actually had profound truth in it. Uh, And here was a little song I sang when I grew up. It said, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. You know how much profundity is in that? Like, I have a three-year-old daughter who's in preschool right now. She's learning that song. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Why? We need to be thoughtful about what comes into our mind, about what we see. We need to be thoughtful about what we are seeing on a daily basis, on our computer, on our TV, on our phone. We need to be the type of people who say, I'm not just going to let my eyes see whatever. And for some of you, that's going to mean some extreme things. For some of you, that means you need to get rid of a television in your bedroom. For some of you, this is going to sound like the craziest heresy I could say tonight. Some of you need to get rid of your smartphone and just pick up a dumb phone, okay? Like truly, for some of you, like that would be the victory over your pornography addiction because that's the only way you access it. And so you get a dumb phone and it, it can make phone calls and text messages mostly um, and, and you get that. And so you decide, like, I'm just not going to let this stuff come in. I'm, I'm going to limit the shows I watch, not because I'm, like, better than other people, but because I just don't want to be that person. I want to be thoughtful about what my eyes see. And then if you remember that song, it's be careful little eyes what you see, and then it says be careful little hands what you do. This is not just what comes into your mind. It's what you actually do. It's how you actually behave in this world. It's you realizing that every time I go to that party, I seem to make really stupid mistakes, so maybe, perhaps, I should not go to the party. Every time I get drunk, which is a whole other issue, 
Every time I drink a little too much, this kind of goes on, so, so maybe I should actually not do this. Or, or let me just get all up in your business right now. If you've got an individual and you get together and you're like, well, what we do is we get together and we say we're going to watch movies. But it never ends with watching movies. Perhaps it's time to stop getting together late at night when no one else is around and watching movies. Perhaps it's time to say we will only watch movies in the middle of the day when all the roommates are there and all the cameras are on. I don't know. Like, there's some way we've got to decide that we're not going to be alone in this situation. And at some point, you've got to decide, I've got to be careful about what I do. You see, here's what the Lord Jesus says. I know some of this sounds just like crazy. But like some of this sounds like absolute insanity. Like, Brian, you're telling me to get a dumb phone and to only hang out with people during the day and to get rid of my television. And here's what I want you to know. What I'm suggesting is like weak sauce compared to what your Lord and Savior Jesus said. Here's what he said in Matthew 5. Some of our favorite verses of scripture. He said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole body be going into hell. And so um, let's be really clear here. Um, Jesus is using images and hyperbole here, all right? If not, like we would just be rolling into YA and be like, hey, one eyes, right? Like that would just be how it works. Like if, we, if this was the case, we would all have to mutilate ourselves. But Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus is not trying to get us to just like mutilate ourselves because here's the crazy thing. You could gouge out both your eyes, cut off both your hands and still sin sexually. Like, like that's, that's it. It's not about your eyes. It's not about your hands. It's Jesus saying, if you're going to take this serious, you're going to actually have to do something. You can't just keep being like everyone else in the world and expect to find victory over sexual sin in your life. You see, sometimes I say things like this, and I'll be like, get a dumb phone, or get a, get a blocker for your internet where you can't actually get to certain sites, or give someone else the password, or do all these other things. And people say this sometimes. They say, that's crazy, Brian. That's insane. But here's what I've become convinced of. The commands of the Bible about sex, like what we're talking about tonight, these commands about sexual sin are not crazy. You know what crazy is? Crazy is saying that you want to be free from sexual sin, but doing nothing to actually fight for it. That's crazy. Crazy is you saying it matters to me that I'm walking in purity. It matters to me that I'm walking in the holiness that God calls me. But I'm not going to do anything to fight for it because I, I, I need an iPhone. It's very important. No one ever lived in this world without an iPhone. It's just, Brian, it's impossible. It's impossible. See, see, that's crazy. Crazy is you saying you want something but doing nothing to actually get it. Here's how the story goes on. It goes on in verse 4. It says, then David sends messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness and she went back home. This monthly issue is her her period. That's what she's cleaning herself from. And this is how the story goes. And I actually want to talk really seriously for a moment about this part of the story. Um, Because if you've not made this connection or observation before, um, the seriousness of this story is not just that David sins sexually. That's an issue, a major issue. And I believe it's an issue at play here. But the other issue at play is that David is the king. And this is a woman who is bathing on her roof, which means she doesn't have the ability to even bathe in a more private place. David can see her. She doesn't have status. She doesn't have power. She doesn't have ability. What we see here is sex. But I don't think on any honest level we could call it sex with consent. And now I want to be clear. that The Bible doesn't use the word consent, but the category is absolutely there. The idea that you are not to have sex with someone outside of their consent, that it is not just legally wrong in the United States of America, it is morally wrong in the eyes of God. And I need you to hear that from me tonight so that you might never walk into that. And then I want you to hear that tonight if you are one of the people, and I believe this room has people in it, who have just walked through the pain of having someone violate them in that way. I just want you to know we see you, we believe you, we care about you. Like, if there's anything we can do, Pastor Brian or myself, if there's someone I can help connect you to, pray with you, get a counselor for you, just give you a hug and say we love you and we see you and we believe you. We want you to know that we understand this is the weight of this. See, this story is not simply about sexual sin. It's about sexual sin mixed with power and how those two things come together. Again, the Bible doesn't use the word consent, but consent is absolutely a part of the Christian sexual ethic. In fact, the way I like to put it is this way. I want to explain it before you jump to conclusions. Let me put it this way. Um, Consent is a necessary but not sufficient ethic for sex. Here's what I mean by that. Consent is necessary. Uh, Again, 
if sex is to happen between two people and consent is not fully actively present, I believe it is not only illegal, it is sin before God to be repented of and sin that needs to be healed from. But I want to be clear that it is not a sufficient ethic for sex. In other words, it has to be there. But just because consent is there does not make it a Christian act. In other words, the popular idea in our culture is if two consenting adults decide to do something, then we shouldn't say anything about it. And I want to be clear that that might work for our culture. It doesn't work for us. That is not the Christian sexual ethic. And I don't even think it's the cultural sex. This is where we're so confused. Because if I told you tonight up on stage, hey, I'm having an affair with someone else, and they're totally into it, and I'm into it, and my wife is, yeah, she's fine with it, whatever, everyone here would be horrified, right? Even though consent is present. Even though both of us are willing even if my wife was willing, you'd still be like, That's, there's something wrong there. So again, for the Christian, consent is absolutely unquestionably necessary. But it's not sufficient. It is not the way we go about things. It is not okay for us to just say, well, both of us want it, and both of us love each other, and we've been dating for a while, and so it's fine. That is not the Christian sexual ethic. Again, the Christian sexual ethic is going to put sex in a context. It's going to put it in the context of one man and one woman in a, in a covenant marriage forever. So again, it goes on this way, and this is the consequences of what happens. It says, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. The woman conceived, she's going to have a baby. And what we begin to see in this story is the consequences of David's choice. It's not the consequences for the woman. She bears the weight of that consequence, which is some of the horrific nature of non-consensual sex of rape, right? That there is a consequence to be held for the woman. It's not her consequence, but this is what David is now dealing with. David made a decision, and that decision has consequences. It ripples outwards. And I want to talk to you tonight about consequences. I want to talk to you tonight about what happens. Because I think we can get really confused in the Christian church about what the consequences of sexual sin is. Can I just say something everyone in this room needs to hear tonight when it comes to consequences? Listen, there will be no condemnation for your sexual sin. Do you know that Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Does anyone in this room believe that's good news tonight? Good news for the sexual sinner? Good news for you with the past? Good news for the addicted person in here? Good news for the person who can't stop looking at porn? Good news for the person who's trying to walk with Jesus and just can't seem to get it together? It is good news. There is no condemnation, no judgment, no wrath of God for you because God put his wrath upon Jesus on that cross. And on the cross, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God so there's none left for you. There is no condemnation for you. And listen, sexual sin is like that one thing where people are like, Jesus has totally forgiven me, except for this little thing I did in the past, except for this addiction I have on the side. You just can't believe he forgave you. But when Jesus said it's finished on the cross, he meant all of it. Not just some sexual sin, all of it. So listen, there will be no condemnation, child of God, for your sexual sin. But I need to be clear, there will be consequences for your sexual sin. There will be. There will be things that happen in this world. It might turn into you and a relationship you're in just dissolving because you cheated on someone. It might be the history of that just dragging you down throughout your life. It might be you wounding someone, getting someone pregnant, you getting fired from a job. Like there are consequences that happen. And do not be naive enough to think that sex is just this no big deal thing that you can just do with anyone every single time you have sex. It affects you. It means something. Again, not for your eternal security. God's got you in the palm of his hand. And you can have sex as many times as you want and he is not going to condemn you because Jesus has taken that on the cross. But listen, there will be consequences. Like I've said this before, like sin will never rob you of your salvation, but it will rob you of your joy. It will rob you of your peace. Like it will rob from you. It will take from you. The story goes on this way and I'm going to read a little bit longer here. It says in verse six, so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is Bathsheba's husband, right? So he just slept with this man's wife. Send him to me. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace as a gift from the king and sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's service and did not go down to his house. David was told that Uriah did not go home. And he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why don't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah is staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I do such a thing as to go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as I live, I will not do this thing. So David's getting fried on this. 
because his whole plan was she's pregnant, but if I send Uriah in there, it'll look like it was his baby and no one's ever gonna be the wiser on this one. But Uriah is such a stand-up guy, which if you wanna talk about what's just gonna irritate someone like David, it's the stand-up man who's like, I'm not even gonna go home to my wife. My men are in the field and I should be out there. And like the subtext is, and you should be out there too, David. It goes on this way. Verse 12, David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. See, Uriah remained in Jerusalem the day after the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David gave him, or David made him drunk. And that evening, Uriah went out to sleep on the mat along his, with his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, Dave, so, 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 so David's mad, right? He's like, I tried to send you home. I tried to get you like totally sauced and send you home to your wife. That didn't work. So he comes up with a new plan. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah on the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So when Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place at the front where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of city, the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David was just not where he should have been wasn't with, he should have, with the people he should have been with. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He had a bad night's sleep. He had some external triggers. He had some internal triggers. Suddenly a woman's pregnant and suddenly her husband is dead because he had him murdered. So, see, this is the progression. And you might think this is extreme. You might think this will never be my story. But the, the story of human history is people saying things like, that'll never be my story until it is. Uh, like, can I remind you of something tonight that your sin may be personal, but it's never private. Like your sin may be personal, but it's never private. And if you think you can just linger in sexual sin, linger in things you know you shouldn't be doing, and it's never going to affect the world, you have deceived yourself. If you've given yourself the line that it's not hurting anyone, so it's no big deal, you have deceived yourself. What your sin, what happens to you will always affect the way you see other people. Like, listen, if you're drowning in pornography right now, like, I so get and understand that struggle. I just want you to know that sin's personal, but it's not private. It affects the way you see other people. Like, men in this room, let me speak to you. If you are into pornography right now, it affects the way you see every single woman in your life. You start to see them as objects to be controlled rather than people to be loved. It's the same for everyone else in this room. Ladies, if you are in a sexual relationship, you might think this is personal. It has nothing to do with you. It doesn't affect anyone. I promise you it's not private. I promise it's affecting your relationship with your family and your friends and your roommate and the people around you. People can sense it and know it and see it. Your sin may be your personal sin, but it's not private. It affects the world around you. And in David's case, it gets Uriah killed. It goes on this way in verse 18. It says, Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he'll ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Why didn't you know they would shoot the arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerob, Beseth? Didn't a woman go and drop an, um, utter, uh, an upper millstone from the wall so that he died in Thesbe? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So in other words, it's this whole setup. Like you're going to come back and say Uriah is dead and I'm going to act like totally shocked. And, and so David is now not only murdering someone, he's not only slept with someone, it's not only a power play that was without consent, but now he's deceiving everyone because that's what always happens with sin. Whenever you walk in sin, you've just got to keep a web of lies going and you've got to keep the plate spinning so no one ever finds out. And some of you know exactly what that's like to be terrified that someone might pick up your phone and see your search history, might be terrified to find out what you did last weekend, might be terrified. What, like, there's no way to live. There's no way to live to be constantly making sure no one ever finds you out. That's what David's doing. It says in verse 21, the messenger sent out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab said to him. Verse 23, the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers sowed arrows and your, at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, do not let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press and attack the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife, this is Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And at the time of the mourning was over, David had brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. 
Listen, on that night when David wasn't where he was supposed to be, wasn't with who he was supposed to be with, wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, had internal triggers, external triggers. When that happened, in that moment, he said, I want to sleep with her. This was not the plan. It was not the plan that he'd have to get her pregnant and that he'd have to kill her husband and then he'd have to lie about it to kind of keep this whole charade. This was not the plan. He just thought it would be a nice one-night stand. That's really what he thought. Like he thought this would be a great thing. It'd be nice. I'm the king. I can do this. No one's going to get mad at me. So here's what he did. He saw the promise. He, he thought there was a promise in this woman and having sex with her. And he bought into the lie that all of us buy into when it comes to sex at one point or another. We buy into the lie that sex is going to satisfy us, that it's going to just be a sexual experience with no strings attached. We all buy into this lie. We think it's just sex, it's just porn, it's just sexual sin. What is it? What, is, what does it even matter? We buy into the lie that it will satisfy us. And I need to say this tonight. I need to remind you that sex will never deliver on its promise to satisfy you. It never will. Listen, sex is not a problem we solve. It's an appetite we manage. But it is never an appetite that we're just satisfied of. We're never good. We never find ourselves in a place where we do something and we go, okay, well, I'm finally good. It always demands more. It always leads us deeper. Like, let me put it this way to you tonight. Uh, I want you to do a thought experiment with me this evening. Um, and the thought experiment um, is going to involve um, probably my favorite fruity candy, okay? Maybe you have other ideas, uh, but Skittles for me are absolutely outstanding. And so I want us to think about Skittles for a moment. And if you don't like Skittles, we'll, we'll pray for you after the service. Um, but I want you to imagine you wake up one morning and uh, you're hungry because uh, you're eating breakfast, which is breaking your fast from the evening, and, and you decide... Um, that you see some Skittles on your counter in the kitchen, uh, and your first thought is, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to eat some Skittles. And you have a skill. <laughs> it's awesome, because it's early in the morning, and you're like, coffee and Skittles? I wonder if that goes together. I don't know. Let's try it, right? And so you're eating Skittles, and you have this idea. Here's your idea. I'm going to eat Skittles the rest of the day. That's all I'm going to eat today. It is a Skittle day. <laughs> you laugh, but I've done things close to that, right? Some of you are like, uh, you know, like, and listen, there's nothing wrong with Skittles. I love Skittles. But if you decide to eat Skittles all day long, and that is your only sustenance for the day, you know what's going to happen, right? You are going to end the day feeling terrible. You are going to go to bed feeling like an absolute mess, but could you imagine if I did this where I ate the orange Skittles for the day? <laughs> then I woke up the next morning and I went, I feel terrible. I feel like I just got hit by a ton of, <laughs> I need like some Excedrin right now. I need something because this is not working. But you know what the problem is? The problem is I was, I was eating the wrong kind of Skittles because orange, by far, we can all agree, the worst flavor of Skittle, right? Like, and if you disagree with me, out. All right. So here's what I'm going to do on day two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the second worst kind of Skittles, okay? The, the purple, this is like cough syrup, um, but like a better kind of cough syrup. So let you imagine, day two, I'm like, no, no. The problem yesterday was that I had the orange Skittles, and orange is the worst. But today, oh yeah, this is really doing it for me. And when it hits your mouth, it's amazing, because it's so sweet and it's so delicious. And I go through the whole day. No, I can't swallow it. <laughs> I go through the whole day and I eat the purple Skittles and I go from bad to worse, right? At one point I'm like, I'm not feeling so good. Now I'm like, I don't know if I can stand up anymore, right? Because it's not good for me. Then I want you to imagine I wake up on day three and I go, okay, the problem was the orange is gross and purple is cough syrup, but red, like, I, what, who doesn't like the reds? Like reds are like standard, good. People have strong feelings about the other one. Everyone likes the reds. I'm so day three, all I do is I eat the reds. I keep going. And then day four, I wake up. And of course, I feel terrible. I probably need to go to the hospital. But I decided to go with the second best, and that is the green. Mm -hmm. Now, green's a newcomer to the scene. They didn't used to have green Skittles. So I think to myself, it's not just that it's a different flavor. It's that it's a new flavor, right? And so I eat green all day. And, I, and every time I do it, it's like, oh, that's, that's good right there. But then six hours later, I feel terrible. And then so finally, on the final day... I decide to go with the glory of Skittle, the glory of the Skittle universe. And I know so many of you are going to disagree with me, and that's okay, because I got the microphone right now, okay? And I go for the yellow. And I thank you, thank you, the true believers. I, I go for the yellow, and I decide, today is a yellow day. 
And finally, this will make me feel better. Now, if this is the most absurd example you've ever heard in church, it's understandable. But you know what's more absurd? Almost all of us do this with sex. Here's what we do. You have a sexual partner. And it kind of, it was good at the beginning. Because let's be honest, sex is good. Sex is a gift. Sex was God's idea. Sex was made to be pleasurable, so you enjoy it. But then at some point, it starts to not work out so well. But then here's the fatal error we make. We start to go, okay, the problem was that he was just kind of this mean, selfish jerk. But if I go with that guy over there, then this, this will be good. This will work out. This will satisfy me. But then it doesn't satisfy you. And then you make the same mistake again. And you decide, well, this guy is actually going to be kind to me and and gracious with me. And he's really the guy I want to be with. And so you start investing everything in there. And suddenly you're just kind of skipping around guys and it never satisfies you. Or, Or let me speak to you if you're into internet pornography. And that's just been an issue for you. And I speak as someone who this has been in my past, in my history, an issue I've had to overcome. You you open up the internet and you go to something. But then I just want you to recognize you don't go back to the same thing again, right? You find new variety and new things. And then you think, okay, maybe I'll do this. Okay, maybe I'll do this. And you keep going and it doesn't satisfy you. But it's like you wake up the next day and you do the same thing over again. And then it's not just true for sex. It's not just true for porn. I can just speak boldly um, to the ladies in the room. Like, I think there's a, an aspect of, of sometimes sexual sin that gets missed where it's not the physical, but it's sort of the romantic, sort of idealized fantasy version of men you have out there. And so you meet some guy and you think he's the one, he's Prince Charming, he's the one who's going to make every one of your dreams come true. And then you realize that he's just like a human being and he's also a man um, and he's not going to make your dreams come true. And you go, oh, men are the worst, except this guy, this guy, he's going to satisfy me. And then he doesn't satisfy you. And so you decide to just kind of keep mowing through guys until you realize this isn't satisfying me. You know what the problem is? The problem is not that Skittles are a bad thing. Skittles are a great thing. The problem is that Skittles were never meant to sustain and nourish your life. And the problem isn't that sex is a bad thing. It's that sex was never meant to satisfy the deepest desires of your soul. Because it can't. And if you think the problem is I just need to try a different guy, a different girl, a different website, a different thing, a different idea, a different story, you will always find yourself feeling sick and not realizing why. And some of you are in here tonight and you're sick. You feel sick to your soul. You have a soul sickness and a soul heaviness and you've never been able to put it into words. And tonight I just want to plead with you, even if you don't buy what the Bible says, even if you don't believe in the Christian sexual ethic, to stop looking for things to satisfy you that were never made to satisfy you. Sex was never made to satisfy your soul. It can't satisfy your soul. Only something better than sex can satisfy your soul. And that's how I want to close out tonight. Tonight, I want to close by trying to answer and ask a question that's probably on some of your minds. I've been talking about sex all night, and here's what I recognize. Um, there are certain environments at this church where I speak, and most people are married. That, that ain't this room, right? <laughs> right? This is like the room of the single people, right? And so I've said sex is for marriage between one man, one woman, forever. And you're going, great, Mr. Married Man. That's a fun story you're telling, but I'm single. So here's the question some of you ask. How do I manage my appetite for sex when I'm not married? In other words, cool ideas, Brian, but I'm not married, so what do I do about this? And I'm going to give you two answers, one quickly and one a little less quickly. Here's the quick one. The Bible has a really simple answer that you might not like, but maybe you will. The Bible's answer in 1 Corinthians 7 is, if you have this urge inside of you that you can't control, get married. Get married. That's what it says. It says, it's better for you to marry than to burn with passion, which means if you feel out of control, it's better for you to be married. Again, you may not like that. That's what the Bible says. Go wrestle with it. Here's my second answer. Until you're married. (laughs) Until you're married. I'm going to give you four words. What's the answer to this? You find something better. You find something better. And some of you are like, that's way too simple. Like, that's way too simple. But let me remind you, that's what you do in every other area of your life to manage every other appetite. Like, you know how you have that appetite to sleep? And for some of you, if you had the option, you would just sleep all day, every day, just never leave your bed. You would just always be there. Some of you are like, amen, hallelujah. But what do you do? You find something better than sleep, like having a job to pay the bills so you can live in a house to sleep in, right? Right? That's what you do. 
Or, or for some of you, you're like, um, I would love the Skittle, all Skittles diet. Like I'm into that. How do I sign up? Is that like a program? How do I do that? Right? Like you would love that. But you go, you know, I'm, I'm going to give up the all Skittles, all candy diet, and I'm actually going to choose to eat some foods with, you know, nutrition in them. Why? Because it's something better. doesn't mean easier. doesn't mean less, more pleasurable in the moment. But it's something better. See, every time in life you do something worthwhile, it's because there's something less and you choose something better. Now, some of you are out there thinking, well, oh, something better. Brian, what's better than sex? <laughs> some of you are thinking that. And here's what I want you to know. I'm a married man, like I have a sex life with my wife, and I can promise you this. If sex is the best part, the pinnacle of your life, your life is painfully boring. I really mean that. If it's like my whole life is built around having sex with other people, I'm telling you, your life is amounting to nothing other than your pleasure. Do you want to know what's better than sex? What's better than sex is living a life where you take that sexual energy and you use it to love God and you love people and you serve the world and you pour yourself out for the sake of the universe. That's what's better. What's better is you deciding that sex is a wonderful, good, beautiful gift from God that I will enjoy when I'm married. But until that time, I'm going to pour myself out for the sake of the gospel, pour myself out for the sake of the world. I'm going to love people. I'm going to serve people. How did I manage this before I got married? It was to decide to invest my life in something bigger than me, in something better than me. That's what you're invited to do. There's a million ways that plays out. It's principally going to play out in you loving God and you serving him, becoming like him, studying him, thinking about him, worshiping about him, and you loving other people, and you giving your life for them and serving them and being about them, taking that energy that's within inside of you and saying, I'm gonna use that to be a blessing to this world. I can give you a practical one. And, and this wasn't even really the plan like weeks ago when we planned all this sermon stuff. Um, like Hume Lake's here tonight. Um, I worked on a camp four years, all of college, every summer during college, and I cannot think of a better place where I learned to pour myself out for the sake of the world. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying like, you go up to Hume and you don't experience sexual temptation. Nope, wherever you go, there you are, right? It goes with you. But what I am saying is that you go to a place like Hume Lake for the summer and you decide, I am gonna not think about me. I'm gonna find something better and that something is serving Jesus and loving people and giving myself for the sake of the gospel. I wanna plead with you. If you're struggling, if you're saying, I wanna overcome this, not to think like, I'll go to Hume and it'll all be fixed but to find something like you, to find some place where you can serve and pour yourself out for the sake of the world. Here's how Jesus, the Lord Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter seven. He says this word. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Can I point out two things here? Number one is when you hunger and thirst, when you're after righteousness, when you're after this righteousness, it says you'll be satisfied. Like when you're after sex and you're after what that pleasure is, you'll never be satisfied. But when you seek after Jesus, which is your righteousness, when you seek after him, it says you will be satisfied. Like what sex could never provide for you, Jesus can. But then can I just tell you my favorite thing about this verse? Like this is one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. And if you are a struggler, if you are someone who's just going, I wrestle so deeply with my sin and my shame, can I just give you the good news of this verse? Can I tell you what this verse doesn't say? It doesn't say blessed are the righteous, right? What does it say? Blessed are those who want to be righteous, who hunger and who thirst for it, who fall and stumble and can't seem to pull their life together, but you're craving it. Jesus sees that desire. He knows that you want it. He sees you hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And he says you'll be satisfied. In the good news of the gospel that God doesn't satisfy those who are perfect, but he, he satisfies those who want him. That's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Here's how I want to close out tonight. Um, just with two pastoral comments, our, our band's going to make their way up, and uh, we're going to close singing as we always do, and um, hopefully rejoicing in the goodness of God's gospel. I want to share two pastoral comments with you tonight. Just as a pastor um, over this group, pastor in this church, let me say two things. Number one, um, I care about the devastating effect sexual sin will have on your life. Like, I care about that. I don't even know all of you personally. I just care deeply that you would understand that sexual sin is not nothing, that sex isn't just biology. Sex isn't just a physical act. It is a deeply spiritual act. And I think if you're honest, you believe that too. I care about the consequences. I see David's life and I just don't want that blowing up your life as well. I've seen it over and over and over again where sex destroys people's lives and they never recover from it.
So listen, I care about the devastating effects of sexual sin on your life, but can I tell you what I care about more? I care more about how you respond when you sin sexually. That's what I care about. Tonight, my big, uh, my big burden is not that you would walk out of here and never sin sexually again. In fact, I anticipate and expect that that's gonna be a struggle for some of you for your entire life. You know what I care most about? I care about how you respond to sexual sin because how you respond when you do sin shows whether or not you believe the good news of the gospel or not. Because when I respond to my sexual sin with shame and guilt and God would never love me, I probably shouldn't even go to church, I'm just gonna stop following him, I'm the worst. When you respond that way, it just shows you don't believe the gospel. I want you to respond to your sexual sin, to your past, to your addictions, to your shame, to whatever that thing you're feeling right now. I just suspect that some of you listening online in this room right now just feel this kind of weird thing in your gut right now. Can I suggest to you that that's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's not here to bring guilt and condemnation. Remember, that got put on Jesus on the cross. But the Holy Spirit wants to call you to repentance. And here's something absolutely beautiful. Later in his life, David is going to get called out for his sin with Bathsheba, with Bathsheba's husband, with the power and the lies and the manipulation and the sex. He's going to get called out for it by a prophet. And after he gets called out and after he realizes his sin and after he's broken over all of that, he pens Psalm chapter 51. I'm going to read that for you tonight, but I recommend that to you. For some of you, you need to go home tonight. And before your head hits the pillow, you need to read Psalm 51 again. May this be your prayer tonight. May this be the prayer of your life. I'm going to read this psalm and we're going to stand. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Can I just have everyone across this room stand with me as I read? You just stand to your feet. And listen, for some of you, you hear this sermon and, and, and sexual sin has just not been something that's just torn a path through your life. Would you just spend this moment praying for the many, many people in this room for whom that's the case? And if this is you tonight, maybe no one even knows about your struggles. May Psalm 51 be your prayer this evening. Psalm 51 verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion blot out my transgressions wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You sought me the wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that have been crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain.